<laughs> well, good morning. Good afternoon. I always forget. It's always seven minutes, five minutes after when we start, right? Just to recap, I know I don't think everybody was here last week. Uh, we are talking about repentance. Now, not the basic elemental concept of repentance, like you see the old guy at the homeless guy all raggedy on the corner saying, repent for the kingdom is at hand, right? No, not that that basic kind of concept, but more of a mature approach to repentance and the fact that sin doesn't have to be ruling in our lives. We can can have power. We don't have to have this defeatist attitude that, well, I'm just a sinner and I'm I'm going to uh, sin regardless of, of what happens. And even though sin came through one man and therefore all sin and condemnation came to all man, we know, based on what we've already touched on, that Christ came and he's freed us from that. And that we can rejoice. We can rejoice. And so it is through repentance that we don't have to justify sin in our lives or in the life in, in our world around us. We can stand for what is right. Through repentance that our faith grows rather than is weakened through the constant bombardment of the things going on around us, and it can grow where we can move mountains. We can move mountains. I hope that you've had some opportunity in your life to see faith do miraculous things. I know I have. And also through repentance, we can honor the sacrifice and the blood of Jesus Christ who has set us free from the bondage of sin. And so that's what we, we touched on last week, and those are, those are the reasons why we need repentance in our life. But now we must ask ourselves, how do we make it real in our life? How do we harness that power in our life? How do we take something that normally is looked on as, as well, you just need to do this because you're a sinner, to how can I, how can I be free? How can I be free? And we're going to start in John chapter 4. John chapter 4. There's, there's always a starting starting place when you're faced with a, a problem. You might wonder why I'm turning here, but there's there's something that's profound in this passage that has a couple different applications. And so here in John four we're gonna we're not gonna read the whole account we know it's the account of Jesus coming to the well, meeting the Samaritan woman, going back and forth about worship, and so forth and so on, because the Samaritans, they worshiped on the mountain, whereas the Jews worshiped in the, the temple. And so we, we pick up in verse 23, where Jesus is talking about how things have changed. He says, An hour is coming, and now is, when true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshiper. worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Now, this passage is important for our discussion for a couple different reasons. First, how must we worship God? That's what we're here for today, right? To worship God. How must we do it? I like words like must in the Bible. It leaves it pretty clear. Anybody? How must we worship him? We just read it. It's not your question. I'm not trying to saw off a branch on you. Spirit and truth, right? Spirit and truth. It, it has to be. 
you know, when we get in, into it, you know, what spirit is and what truth is, you know, that's where it starts to starts to take some effort to to really find out. We must worship in truth. This goes back to what we said on last Sunday, right? God, at the very beginning, when he created man and woman, he set forth their boundaries, and he also determined this is good and this is evil. He gave them opportunity to, to trust him in that, to have a relationship with, with him in that, to exist in that, or to seize autonomy and define it for themselves, which then led to sin. You know, God set that standard. Can someone give me the very basic, pretty much literal definition of sin? That which is contrary to God. That which is contrary to God. Yes, that is, that is definitely... It means miss the mark. I know yeah. we've, we've heard that before. Miss the mark, right? Yeah. You have truth, and you have everything else. When you, when you don't hit that, that mark, you know, it's sin. James, I think, puts it very, very plainly when he says, Therefore, the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, that is to him sin. Not, not, meeting, not coming to God's standard of truth. We rightly relate to truth when we rightly relate to God. And so that, that's, a, that's, again, kind of what we touched on last week. Okay, this is what good is. This is what evil based on God's word. So, in our search for the truth, when we gain an understanding of it, we do it. Obviously, just as important to worshiping God in truth is to worship in spirit, but that's another subject for another time. So, getting back to repentance. What is the first step in combating the problem? I think this message, the message this morning was great because there are a lot of things that tie in. What's the first thing you, you do when you're faced with the problem? Admit it. Yeah. You have to admit you have a problem. You know, and that's that's what what part of this is is when we worship in spirit and truth, we have to be true about ourselves. We have to be truthful to ourselves. We have to be truthful in what we know, we have to be truthful in what we do, we have to be truthful in, in all aspects. We have to recognize. You know, I, I've almost have twenty years as a technician whether that's electrical, electronic, hydraulic, mechanical. I've worked on multiple different systems, and inevitably those systems break down. There, there's, a, there's a problem with it. And the first thing you have to find is the problem. You have, to, you have to work your way through a series of symptoms down to the problem. You're not going to change anything. You're not going to fix anything unless you find the problem, whether that's on a... a uh, a circuit on a multi-million dollar guided missile launching system or why your light doesn't turn on when you flip the switch in the kitchen, right? Fortunately, in the kitchen, usually it's just change the light bulb and it's a pretty easy fix. You have to, to find the problem. For ourselves, when it comes to sin, we have to admit there's a problem. We touched last week on the fact that, well, we're sinners. We're, we're sinners. Not to, to let it be a defeatist mindset, but we, we, we're, there's a sinner. And while we don't have to let sin define us, that doesn't mean we go around fooling ourselves that we don't have sin. Being so self-righteous in our own minds that we think, oh, I'm good. Denial is not a river in Egypt. you probably heard that before, right? <laughs> it's, it's very detrimental if we think we're, we're, we're good, that our... Our, uh, yeah, I'll stop right there. <laughs> when we worship in spirit and truth, it's, it's not merely understanding the truth, but being truthful about ourselves. 
being truthful and honest with ourselves. And there's another John who wrote some very plain words. I want to turn to 1 John chapter 1, that he encourages us through this plain speaking to be honest with ourselves, especially when it comes to sin. First John chapter 1, verse 1. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we beheld in our hands handled, concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested, and we proclaim, uh, excuse me, and we have seen and bear witness and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, that you also may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write so that our joy may be made complete. And this is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin... We are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. And so we see how, how just as we read there in in John chapter 4, we have to be honest with ourselves. We can't deceive ourselves thinking, well, I I have no sin. The fact of the matter is, sin is going to be be coming into our life, whether we like it or not. We're talking today about how we handle it. What are we going to do with it? Are we going to let it have master over us and control us, or are we going to take control over it? You know, I'd like to share with you just a little bit about myself. I uh, I like looking at the Greek language. I, I spent some time under uh, Pastor Stan Allen studying Greek, it was very enjoyable to me. You know, we sat down and we, I think we translated the first three chapters of the book of Revelation. Really fascinating to, to sit there with the Greek and, and go through and look at it and dissect it. And the way I, I see it is, is that this Bible right here, it paints us this beautiful picture of, of re, uh, redemption, of mercy and grace and salvation. And we don't have to be Greek scholars to see it, or Hebrew scholars. I think it would be an injustice for, for God to say, well, you only have to know this one language to understand salvation. That's not the case. God is able to transcend language. And so looking at the Greek sometimes, though, I think it turns the definition up. You know, For those who are photographers, it sharpens it just a little bit where you can see a little bit more detail, right? Not that, that we're going to miss the picture without it, but... It's God's word in HD, if you will, right? For example, here in verse 9, it says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That word, homologeo, it it means not simply just to profess with your mouth, but it means to acknowledge. To acknowledge, yeah, I have sin. I have sin in my life, and I'm going to do something about it because Christ has given me the opportunity to, do it, opportunity to do it and it says as a result he is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins. You know, we, it's, it's an admission of guilt if you will. It's admitting 
that it's there. Yes, I have sins in my life. I have sins in my life. I'm not going to pretend that I don't and continue in sin. Kind of sounds like Paul's words in Romans 6, right? May we, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Well, may it never be. Since we have such a great cloud of witnesses, I want to go to Genesis chapter 2, who have been faithful, who lived a life for the Lord, and have written, been written down for our benefit. Let's look at a man who is known for his great faith. That's Abraham. Abraham. Abraham, he was called out of the Ur of Chaldees to go to a, a foreign land, and he did it. Along the way, he experienced many different things, and, and we're going to pick up a little bit further on, past that point, in chapter 20 here. And, yes, Genesis 20. Did I say? What did I say? Two. Two. Excuse me. He's going to talk about Abraham and Genesis. This ought to be good. Yes. Excuse me. Two. I forgot to add. I forgot to add the zero. I forgot to add the zero at the end of the two there. Yes. Uh, for the sake of context, and I'll try and do it fairly quickly. I'm going to read uh, the chapter. It says Abraham journeyed there toward the land of Negev and settled between Kadesh and Shur. Then he sojourned to Gerar, and Abraham said of Sarah his wife, "She is my sister." So Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream of the night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is married. Now Abimelech had not come near her, and he said, Lord, will thou slay a nation even though blameless? Did he not say himself to me, She is my sister? And she herself said, He is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and in the integrity of my hands I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that in the integrity of your heart you have done this, and I also kept you from sinning against me. Therefore I did not let you touch her. Now therefore restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you will live. But if you do not restore her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. Actually, we don't need to read the whole thing. We just we get to the basis up there. Fortunately, Abimelech... For him, he did he did understand that you know there was God and and God was willing to to help him because of the integrity of his heart. But we're talking about Abraham here. What did Abraham do? You know, Abraham, he uh, he was a man of great faith, right? That's what we have recorded. Yet we see that even having that strong faith in God, that does not mean he doesn't have some things to work on. This isn't the first time that Abraham lied about Sarah being his wife. If you go back to Genesis 12, which we won't, same thing happened in Egypt. He comes into Egypt, Pharaoh, he, he's, he's fearful of Pharaoh, and he says, well, I might die. You know, That's what he later on says here in chapter 18. He tells Abimelech, oh, I, I told you that because I, I was afraid you'd see my wife and see how beautiful she is, and you'd kill me and take her. Well, the same thing happened in Genesis 12. Genesis 12, fearful that that this would happen, he moves to lie. Not only did Abraham not consider the consequences of what would happen with his wife, I imagine she's probably a little hot at him, right? <laughs> no, this isn't my wife, this is my sister. Do what you want with her. You know, I'd get this look, right? What are, you, what are you doing here? But beyond that, at this point, God has already promised Abraham that Sarah would bear for him a son of promise. 
So he's putting in jeopardy the very promise that God has given him. That, that's serious business right there. But again, he was fearful, and that fear led him to make a terrible decision. So, Brother, yeah. Something that's really interesting, if you look at his response in there, he said, he said I didn't think there was a fear of God in this place. Right? Yes. And, you know, sometimes we can have that same approach, right? With, you know, I don't think anybody here, it's almost like, like you said, just as you pointed out, look, he's already promised. Mm-hmm. God's already promised to the child and there. And he's in the land. And he says, I didn't, I didn't see, I, didn't, I was afraid that there was no fear of God here. Mm-hmm. Well, God came to a bill like, yeah. in a dream. Amen. Amen. Right? I mean, yeah. it's like, hey, bud, you're not in charge of all this. Nope. You know what I mean? But, you know. And the arm of the Lord's not short. It's just interesting. You know, yeah. we perceive things, as mm-hmm. you're pointing out, right? We perceive things our way, right? Yeah. Of human flesh. But I just thought it was interesting. He he say he stated, look, I don't I didn't think there was a fear of God here. <laughs> God reached out and touched his heart. Yeah. That that's almost like making an excuse for sin, right? Well, nobody around here really looks like they're God fearing people, so I could probably get away with this because nobody's going to call me out on it, right? Well, well plus it was a, it, it was a half truth. Yeah. It was a half lie. Yeah. Quasi. Well, those are the most convincing lies we tell ourselves, right? Well, she was his sister. <laughs> By a different mother. Yeah. But she was his sister. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, this was a habitual sin for, for Abraham. And that's the point. I, I, the reason why I brought it out is there's a couple things that come uh, along with this. You know, back to my first point. To conquer habitual sins in our life, we have to first recognize that we have them. To identify them, to say, yes, this is something that I continually struggle with. What, you know, what negative tendency do I succumb to in a, in a weakened state? When I'm weakened by fear, weakened by anxiety, or peer pressure, or loneliness, or depression. You know, I mentioned a couple of days ago, a man alone is in the danger zone. Loneliness can, can cause us to do things that we normally wouldn't. wouldn't. That's why it is important for have brotherhood, to have that companionship that will strengthen us and shore us up in times that we might be weakened. What about discouragement? Do you feel discouraged in your life at all? I remember this, this uh, story I heard once, it's kind of almost a parable, and it had to do with the devil. Devil's having this sale, and this, you go to the sale, and he's has all these instruments that he uses against man, right? Arrows of jealousy, the hammer of anger, the dagger of worry, a slingshot of doubt, the axe of hatred, and numerous others. He's he's having this sale, but in the midst of all this, this one tool stands out. It's up on a pedestal. It's just something small and simple. It's well worn, little chipped, little worn down. And a curious shopper inquires about the price because it's more than any other instrument there combined. And the devil says, ah, yes, this is my favorite tool, the wedge of discouragement. He says, you see, it's so easy to use. All it takes is just a little bit. All I got to do is is, is insert the, the, the very tip of it. And then sometimes they even drive it in themselves. Right? You just you hammer it in a little bit and it widens and it grows 
and to the point where now it's it's destroyed your hopes and your dreams and your aspirations. It splits it right in two. He says that's why the wedge of discouragement commands such a high price because it's his most effective tool. Once he opens it up, he can throw anything else at you that he he can. So we have to we have to recognize that sometimes we can be in a weakened state and we can succumb to some of those things that we succumb to. You know, what do we give what do we do when we feel the pressures of life? Is it lying? Maybe do we give in to some lust, into some gluttony, into anger? Keep your finger here real quick. We're gonna come right back. Let's go to Hebrews chapter twelve. Hebrews twelve. What about boredom? You know, we, we don't think of boredom much than that, you know, just we're bored. We're you know, talking about today about entertaining ourselves when we're bored. Sometimes boredom starts off as just, uh, I'm just going to, you know, flip open Instagram or I'm going to flip open YouTube and, and find something because I'm bored. Well, those things have this chain effect to where next thing you know, you're looking at things that maybe you shouldn't be looking at. Verse 1 says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Notice how he says, the sin. The sin. I mean, there's, there's all kinds of different sins out there, but he's telling us we need to examine the sin in our life. We're going to have multiple sins, but what right now may be tripping you up? What right now may be causing you to stumble? What right now might be hindering your race? Your race. You're not going to finish that race until you look down and you see those concrete shoes they have tied around you. And what is it going to take? You can't just slip them off. you got to break out that chisel and that hammer, and you have to start working at it. You have to be purposeful. Now, have we considered that our sins might be difficult to identify because they're ingrained into our very character, right? If you're raised in a household where dad and mom are yelling at each other all the time and they're angry, they're yelling and they're angry at you all the time, and then you find yourself as an adult getting angry at the littlest thing, it becomes ingrained in you. You know, most people know me as, as a quiet and calm impatient person. I don't think my children would quite portray that towards me. Now, you know, I understand there's a certain level of impatience and a certain little level of, of things that come with being a parent. But I can tell you it is with shame that it's not just that. It's not just a little bit. It's not just your natural tendency for myself. I grew up in a very strict household with a very impatient father who would lash out at the littlest thing. And unfortunately, it's ingrained in me. It's ingrained in me. I, I, I yell, I'm impatient, I'm condescending, I belittle my children. I, I say this with shame. But again, I have to recognize it because how am I going to become a, a better parent? I get angry at them. I'm a straight a-hole. I'm sorry, there's no lack of better term when it comes to my, my kids. Last week in my 
my planner that I, I got to, to try and help plan myself, there's a question on Tuesday. It said, who will you be today? Who will you be today? And because this weighs on my heart as a father, I said, I wrote down, I'll be a loving, patient, and positive person in my life, especially for my family who look to me for support. I'm tired of being angry. I'm just tired of it. I'm tired of my kids responding to me in fear. I'm tired of feeling like they're more at ease when I'm not around because they're not worried what's going to set Dad off. You know, I can show the world that I'm a calm and patient person, but my kids, my kids will tell you that, or you know, things show us otherwise, right? For me, it's my kids, and so that's what I work on. That's what I work on. Enough about that. You know, there's always room for improvement. It's only through habitual, purposeful action that I'm going to put those things aside. Habitual and purposeful action. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 20. And again, I, I, I bring these things out so we're not beating ourselves up. I'm not here, and I don't share those things with you because I want you... To, to, to look any worse for me or, or anything. that I share that because I know that I can be better. And I know each one of us want to be better. And so rec- first recognizing what's in our life and what is, is causing us to stumble is the only way we're going to work on it and become better. Again, he says, Abraham journeyed there in verse 1 to the land of Negev and settled between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar, and Abraham said of his Sarah, his wife, she's my sister, and Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. Again, his, his, he was a habitual liar at this point. Abraham, right? When faced with uncertainty and fear, his faith wavered, and he leaned on his own understanding. His own understanding, as we pointed out, was, well, there's no fear of God here. This must be the most logical thing to do. The next step after admitting it, in order to overcome our habitual sins, is to recognize our vulnerabilities. Our vulnerabilities. You know, recognizing that we are susceptible. Now, I've shared with some of you in the past that I used to take a pretty harsh outlook on addicts. Bakerfield's no short of addicts, right? We, we drive down downtown, we drive down Union, we see some pretty crazy things. I was driving, <laughs> driving to work the other morning, and I see this guy. I mean, this is 6 o'clock in the morning, and he's standing on the corner. He's, he's all uh, dirty and thing, and he's sitting there going like this. Oh, man. <laughs> right? You know, it, it's, it's comical. It's funny to see, but at the same time, it's so sad because you know his mind is gone. Now, I used to, I used to have such a, a, a harsh outlook, you know, that they're just weak. They can stop whenever they want. They're just, they're just being weak. And then I had an opportunity to read the autobiography of Anthony Kiedis. He's the uh, lead singer for Red Hot Chili Peppers. And a good portion of his autobiography talks about his addiction. He talks about how it, it destroys his life. And at one point, he was clean for three years. Three years. By, by three years, the, the addiction, you would think, is, is past him. He's been strong. He's been clean. He's been healthy. He goes to the dentist, and they, he has to have some dental work done. And un, unbeknownst to him, that the, the anesthesia they use is an opiate base. 
it gets just a little bit of taste in that one local area, and it's enough to where afterwards he, the craving's too strong, and he goes and he, he starts all over. He just, he just relapses after three years. Now, what does that have to, what does that have to do with what we're reading here in, in Genesis 20? There's been a lot that's already happened to Abraham, right? Just a quick rundown. In Genesis 17, at the ripe age of 99, God tells him, you're going to have a son of promise. You're going to have a son of promise. I'm going to give you this son. And he believed God. And it was counted, reckoned unto him righteousness, the, the scripture tells us. Not only that, but God would go on and command him to circumcise himself in his household. And he did it. Speaking of anesthesia, they didn't have local anesthesia back then. At 99, him and his household having to do that, that takes some commitment. That takes some faith to, to say, yes, I'm going to do this no matter how painful it is. And so he did it. In Genesis 18, Abraham is visited by God and two angels. And he, he faithfully is with hospitality. He brings them in. He gives them a feast. And he's, he's, there's many great things about his future that are revealed to him at this time. He would go on and, and learn about what they're going to do with Sodom and Gomorrah, and, he, and on behalf of Sodom and Gomorrah, because he knows his cousin Lot's there, he, he petitions God to have mercy upon them. And we know what ends up happening, but still, because of that, Lot and his daughters are saved because of it. And let's not forget that Abraham had already picked up everything he knew and left the land that he knew, and he went... This is a man of faith. This is a, a man that is demonstrated already, yet we find here he falls back, right? He falls back into this, this habit of lying when he's fearful. He was fearful. He did the same thing he did back in Genesis 12 before all this growth. He shows us that even when we've already demonstrated our faithfulness, even when we, we've We've been walking that path. We've been very dedicated to the Lord. We, we get into his word. We pray that we're still vulnerable. And the reason we're vulnerable is because Satan is never going to let up on us. And so we have to remember what Paul warns us. Therefore, let him who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. There in 1 Corinthians 10. You know, what do they say about big guys, right? The bigger they are the harder they fall, right? The, the, the further we get along in our journey for the Lord, the more we end up having to lose because God has granted to us so much in our salvation. Just as dangerous as giving up on our fight over sin, that defeatist mindset is denying the fact that we're not vulnerable to it. We are vulnerable. We have to. Satan is standing by wanting to trip us up. You know, that's one of the reasons why we're given the story of Job. He, he petitioned God. He said, let me attack Job. Job was blameless and upright. He feared evil. He was, he was a great person, but Satan wanted him. And so we're given that example that Satan is going to come after us because he's not going to be happy until... We're right there alongside him. Misery loves company, right? Let's go to Philippians chapter 3. You know, if we feel like we're, we're no longer susceptible to sin, 
So that's one of the dangerous things about one of the doctrine that once you believe all your sins, past, present, and future, are forgiven. It develops this mindset that, well, I can do whatever I want, and I'm good. That I, I'm, I'm golden. But we have too many scriptures that tell us the New Testament churches, you know, they were told, stop sinning. Philippians 3. Verse 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision, who worship God in the Spirit of God, and the glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. We'll, we'll stop right there. Circumcision, as even in the Old Testament, has always been a matter of the heart. It's always been a matter of the heart. He, the prophets would go to the people and say, you need to circumcise your heart, you stiff-necked people. He said, just because you've done it physically doesn't mean your heart is in the right place. Just because you've been baptized doesn't mean your heart's always in the right place. He says right here, we put no confidence in the flesh. Put no confidence in the flesh. This man, by uh, of in, in itself, is, is not going to accomplish anything. Paul states that we are supposed to worship in the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Paul said that in his flesh dwelt nothing good. Romans 7. Often this is the very reason why many Christians fall back onto habitual sins is they start to think that they're over it. Right? I've nailed it. I've got this one in the bag. I can move on. And what happens? Well, they, they, they turn their back on something that has the potential to come back and bite them, in the, bite them again. You know, in this area, many uh, in this area, members of the, the Alcoholic Anonymous, I think they've, they've got some right conclusions. Even though they might have maintained sobriety for 10 years, they still say, I'm an alcoholic. Now, they're not saying they are, they're saying that that's their current practice. They're not saying that that's what they currently are, but they're talking about their current vulnerability. They, they understand how it's ruined their life in the past. That one little thing can set them back down that course of destruction. Some people really struggle with this concept for Christians because, as they said, we're, we don't want to take this idea of, well, I'm just a sinner. I'm just a sinner because it has this, develop, uh, this, this defeatist mindset. Well, we're not talking about our current situation. We're talking about our vulnerability. And that's why Paul... If you'll turn with me, uh, let's see here. Actually, before we get there, hold on. Um, let's go to Proverbs 16. Proverbs 16. verse, verse 18. 
says, pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before stumbling. Just like you know, we, I touched on Paul saying, he who thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. We, we, we can never let our guard down. You know, that just, just as, as I touched on, Satan has, has many avenues in which to attack us, whether that's through discouragement, through fear, through anxiety, through depression. You know, he, he can get in there. When a person says, okay, I'm okay, I'm, I'm no longer tempted, it comes back. And Paul, though, you know, he, even though he, he called himself an apostle, right, called by Jesus Christ to do these wonderful, wonderful things, I'm a bond slave, he would also talk about who he was. Scripture says that we are now the righteous of God. Right? Second Corinthians chapter five. We're co heirs with Christ. That's a great thing. Romans chapter eight. Therefore, they say we should never call ourselves sinners. <laughs> Must do be doing an outside activity. Uh, you know, we, we are these great things. I'm a servant of the most high God. I'm a co heir with Christ. I can't call myself a sinner. However, there's verses that quote about the righteousness of God and co-heirs were written by the same man who would call himself just that. Just a quick couple of examples. 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1. This is, this is actually the, the very first verse that I wrote down in this study because it's such, it's such a beautiful verse. It's beautiful for many different reasons. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. It is a trustworthy statement, deserving full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. It's, it's amazing. What does he say? What does he say? Amongst whom I am foremost of all. He, he wasn't just talking about his past. He wasn't just talking about his past because we can go over to Romans chapter 7 and he, he talks about his constant struggle. His constant struggle and how he would, he would live out this concept of I put no confidence in the flesh because he knew the only place that he could be empowered was through God and his Son. So in Romans 7 verse 14, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold into the bondage to sin. For that which I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not wish to do, I agree with the law, confessing that it is good. So now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which indwells me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, but that is in my flesh. For the wishing is present in me, but the doing of good is not. For the good that I wish, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not wish. But if I am doing the very thing I do not wish, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which, which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wishes to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind, and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my, man, my, in my members." Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but the other with my 
flesh, the law of sin. He, he, he's, he's, he's trying to be vulnerable. He, he's, he's, this is Paul being vulnerable for the sake of those he's writing to in Rome because he wants us to know that we always have to be on guard. We have to be on guard. We have to approach the Scripture, viewing it with, with a full picture. Paul says both. Yes, I, am, I, am, I have been crucified with Christ and my old self is dead. But at the same time, he says, I have a sin nature and that it's, it's a battle between the spirit and my flesh and sometimes I don't do what I want to do. He brings this out in, in another letter to Galatia in chapter 5. Abraham, he had been faithful to God and shown great faith. However, he was still vulnerable, and, and so are we. If, if you think you know, you're standing and you think you've con- conquered it, take heed lest you fall. In order to con- conquer habitual sins, we must, in humility, recognize our, our vulnerability to it. Are you... Um, lost my place here. Our vulnerability to it. Recognize you're still vulnerable. This... This should stand out that through the story of Abraham that he, he could 20 years later, this is a 20-year gap between chapter 12 and chapter 20 where he, he, he did it. Now again, I, I want to reiterate that we're, we're talking about these things not to, to beat one another down, not to, to, to just feel dirty about ourselves, not to feel like that, that, that you know, there's nothing that we can do, that, that we should be ashamed of ourselves and who we are. But rather, it should empower us. Why, why do we recognize sin in our life? Why do we repent? Because it, it's life-changing for us. I, I mentioned to you earlier, I'm tired of being angry. Uh, there, I'm tired of being angry. I'm sure that there's some of us that are tired of having anxiety in our life. There's some of us that are tired of having depression. I'm sorry, but it's real. Depression, it affects a third of our country in, in such a way that it's an actual mental health problem that leads to self-harm and suicide. Yes. I'm sorry, that affects God's people too. We are not immune to it. What, hap- what, what brings about depression in our life? Right? Maybe sometimes it's just because we're doing the things we know we shouldn't and we, we just feel ugly about ourselves. This frees us. This, this allows us to, to move past those things that just tear us down and cause us to feel those ways. We have plenty of scripture to show us. Next week, we're going to start looking about putting purposeful action in our life. Purposeful action, as I mentioned earlier. Habitual purposeful action in our life is the only thing that's going to help us to move past these things. Steps we can do to ensure that repentance is not only real, but it's effectual. It can have that power in our life to where I'm now free. I'm now free from those things which so easily entangle me and cause me to be the person that I don't want to be. So, Any thoughts or questions on those, those things? All right. Well, thank you for your time.